Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Back during the pandemic, when I was sending out devotionals through our podcast feed, One of the people that I profiled as an illustration of the power of weakness in Christianity was Cy Sperling. And you may know Cy Sperling as um, one of the greatest pitchmen of all time because he was the president of the Hair Club for Men. Do you remember the Hair Club for Men uh, ads that ran on TV in the late 80s and 90s? Remember the Hair Club for Men? They featured Cy Sperling himself, and he would offer you free literature about the benefits of the Hair Club for Men and magazines about men's grooming and the latest articles about hair loss drugs. (laughs) But when it came to his uh, sort of never-ending fame, uh, he died sadly a few years back uh, in 2019, excuse me, 2020, he died in 2020. Uh, But when it comes to his immortality, there is something you will probably remember, which is at the end of the commercial, Cy Sperling held up a photo of himself. And this was an older photo that showed him sad and dejected and um, downcast and bald. (laughs) And he held it up next to his own smiling full head of hair and proudly proclaimed, I'm not just the president of the Hair Club for Men, I'm also a client. I mean, how great is that? He's not just the president, he's a client. And there's nothing like a testimonial about a product from a company's leadership to inspire belief and trust in the brand, right? I mean, can you imagine if the Ford Motor executive got caught driving a Chevy? Or if a Pepsi um, executive got caught with a case of Coke in the grocery store? I mean, of course not, right? We never do that because the power of testimony is so well established. It's not just whether or not a product is objectively good and here are the reasons why. Um, It's better on many ways to have someone come forward and say, hey, I love this product. My experience with this product is good. And so um, I recommend it to you. That's a very powerful message for any of us. This week in the book of Acts, we're going to experience Paul's first Uh, hair club for men moment, (laughs) right? Um, Because Paul is going to share his own testimony about the goodness of Jesus to him, not abstractly, but personally, how God actively intervened into his life in a miraculous way and turned him around. And my hope is today to get you to consider your own experiences with God and ask this question. Can we look back at our lives and see God at work to the point that we could recommend or to use the Bible language, to testify, if you will, can we recommend um, the goodness of God to others around us? 
Is there something in your life where you have had a, a, a divine godly experience where you could say, you know, because of this, I can tell other people this story and therefore I can recommend God as a result of this uh, event that happened in my life. Um, last week to catch you up in our sermon series, we discussed how Paul, uh, at this point in the book of Acts, his life is in real danger. Uh, Paul intuits this himself, but not only that, the Holy Spirit corroborates this information to Paul. And the rest of the church is, of course, seeing the handwriting on the wall as well, and they're anxious for Paul's safety. But today we find that Paul has returned to Jerusalem, where he will deliver a love offering to the local church from the global church to help with some um, uh, money and financial issues the church in Jerusalem is having. Uh, Paul traveled the ancient world and took a collection and brought the money back to the church in Jerusalem to help them out. And when he returns home, as it were, to Jerusalem, he returns to the temple, the Jerusalem temple to worship. But while Paul is worshiping in the temple, uh, Paul is spotted by one of his many enemies, a Jewish man from a synagogue in Asia Minor. And it just so happens to be someone who had her heard Paul teach and preach before and rejected his teaching and, and in fact fought against it. It's one of Paul's enemies. And once Paul is spotted and once Paul is outed, uh, everything seems to fall apart. Our text says, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Um, that's what our text says. And the second part of it, you know, that's not true, right? That's not true. Paul knows the rules of the temple. He did not defile it, but the alarm has been sounded nonetheless. Paul is grabbed and a crowd forms, and that crowd becomes a mob, and this mob forcibly drags Paul from the temple, and once they're outside of the temple, they beat him to a, they beat the tar out of him. I mean, there's no way around it. The text says that he can't even walk upstairs without help. That's how badly he's been beaten. And it's only when word gets to the Roman, the local Roman uh, barracks, which is like the Roman police station, that the Roman guards show up and make the mob calm down a little bit. Uh, but even then, it's too rowdy to have a conversation and figure out what's happening. And so they take Paul and they they bring him back to the barracks at Rome, or the Roman barracks in Jerusalem, excuse me, uh, to figure out what the heck is happening. And Paul says, listen, this is all a huge understanding. Let me just address the crowd very briefly, and I'm going to try to calm them down. I understand, like, this is, you know, Paul offers to help ameliorate things, and the Roman uh, soldiers say, okay. And so Paul stands up outside of the Roman barracks, and he addresses the mob that wants him dead. And what he does, as he starts speaking to the crowd in Hebrew, which um, shocks the crowd, right? Because that's the local dialect. He doesn't speak to them in Greek uh, as someone who is speaking like the language of the day. He speaks to them in, in Hebrew. And he begins to tell them about his testimony, uh, the story of how he came to be who he is and what he's doing. And as we'll see in our reading, he doesn't get to finish the story because as soon as he mentions the G word, Gentiles, and how he was called to preach about God's love for them, the crowd kicks back into riot mode again and things get ugly quickly. But um, that's to say that the sermon today is actually really remarkable because it's the first time in the Bible that Paul shares his testimony. 
Really, it's the first recorded example of a testimony that has been preached and shared to a crowd. Paul shares how he was knocked off his high horse, literally, by a blinding light that is Jesus himself. And Paul shares how Jesus appeared to him and how he left and went to get healing in Damascus from a devout Jewish Christian living there. And this Jewish Christian named Ananias um, gives Paul the next step on his journey of faith. And so as we're walking through, you can see here, what does an Ananias say to Paul as Paul recounts it? Ananias says this, The God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Uh, the three great themes of our sermon series, they're here in Ananias' words, aren't they, right? Um, if you've been part of our sermon series for a while, what we've been doing is going through the book of Acts for all of the, the sermons that are preached, and we're looking through to see if there's sort of a golden thread that connects them all. How are they similar? And what we've just seen in the part of the sermon series so far is that there are three key themes that are, are showing up in every single time that uh, somebody, whether it's Paul or Peter or Stephen, addresses a crowd. Whenever somebody preaches, there are three key themes, and we see them in our text today. And those three key themes are that uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is coming back to judge the world as a righteous judge, and that for anybody who repents and believes that he is going to come back and judge the world, there is forgiveness of sins. Those are the three key themes that we see in every single uh, Acts sermon. And we see them in our reading today, right? Uh, because part of the story is that Paul has been appointed by the God of our fathers, as Ananias says, to see this righteous one. Because this righteous one, friends, has been risen from the dead. Uh, and, and the idea is that Paul isn't just... Um, uh, sort of hearing a, a little voice in the back of his head, but he sees the risen Jesus. And that's part of his story, that Paul is a witness to the resurrected Jesus, and now he's going to tell everyone about it. And then Paul's next step, the text says, is to rise and be baptized and to wash away your sins, which is an act of repentance and belief. And this language that uh, Jesus is the righteous one is the he, that he's the standard by which all things in the world will be measured and judged, right? That's a reflection of the Christian belief that there is a, a great coming judgment which Jesus will return. So these three ideas are here, and they're in the sermon that Ananias preached to Paul, and now they're in the sermon that Paul is preaching to this Jewish crowd that wants to murder him and has beaten him to a pulp. That the key core message of the Christian gospel, that Jesus has died and risen again, that Jesus is coming back to judge the world, and that there is forgiveness of sins to anybody who repents and asks for it, it's all here in our reading today. And so Paul preaches and tells the story about how he received the gospel from Ananias, and now he's going to pass it along. And then he gets to the point, of course, where he was freed from blindness, and he goes to the temple to worship, but God is calling him to a special mission, right? What does the text say? Uh, that Paul says God told him to preach to the Gentiles. 
And this is really a fascinating sermon that Paul preaches, of course, because um, Paul is trying in every way to keep his listeners connected, right? He speaks in Hebrew and not Greek. Um, He boasts of his heritage. That's how he starts. He was a Jew born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, under Gamaliel, a a well-known rabbi that's in our reading today. And he connects with their frustration, right? He says, look, I was just like you. Um, I was as zealous as you were. And we know that to be true because he was holding the cloaks of the the stoners, the stone throwers, when Stephen was martyred back in Acts chapter 7. And Paul is saying, look, I was out arresting Christians before trial. I thought this stuff was bunk too. And then I met Jesus. Um, And then things changed. But despite all of Paul's attempts to connect to his audience, Paul steps on this unavoidable landmine when he says that God's call in his work in life is to welcome into the fold of God's people, the Gentiles. The text says that the crowds took off their cloaks and started to whip them in the streets, creating this big old dust storm of sorts, right? And the commentators aren't exactly sure what is going on here. The best guess is, you know, it's really hard to listen to somebody speak if you're standing in a dust cloud. So they're trying to to, to shut down Paul's preaching by whipping up a dust cloud. So, you know, there's dust in your eyes and you can't see and everyone's coughing so you can't hear. Um, but this piece of Paul's message, the final piece of it, um, it falls flat with the audience, that they are rejecting the idea that Gentiles have a place as God's people. Uh, now, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and go back in time a little further, because some years before Paul gives his testimony to the mob, um, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle, right, that Aristotle, you know, was reflecting on the idea of rhetoric. And he, he was talking about how does somebody make a convincing argument and Aristotle argued that by uh, that a convincing argument had three key pieces as a part of it. And, and you can go read Aristotle on this if you want, but you, Aristotle said that if you want to make a good argument, your argument has to have three pieces, logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos, pathos, and ethos. And Aristotle said logos was like logic, right? Not like Jesus is the word. We're talking Greek philosophy here, not Bible. Logos, said Aristotle, was logic. Um, people will weigh the merits of your argument based on the logic of it. Fair enough. We know that you have to have a logically coherent argument if you're going to make an argument, right? But but Aristotle then says, okay, now what you need is pathos. Pathos. Blech, I can't speak today. Pathos. Aristotle says pathos is what you need, which he meant to mean uh, emotion. That people will connect with your argument based on the, the delivery and the, the sincerity and the emotional appeal as a part of it. And you and I know that helps, that sometimes you read a logical argument and you say, well, I don't know how that's true, but then someone can come and convince you of something beyond the logic of it. And they're able to appeal to your emotions and you say, okay, well, I can understand it a little better now when you phrase it and give it some pathos and you put some skin on it and it's not just a rational thing. And most people can intuit the logic and emotion part of an argument, that you have to make an appeal, there has to be some emotion involved, it has to make emotional sense as well as logical sense. But this third part of the argument that most people don't consider is the ethos of the argument. And Aristotle said that ethos is the trustworthiness and the reputation of the speaker. Who cares if an argument is logical and shared with passion? If the person arguing that for that position has bad breath or wears ugly clothes or has a history of compulsive lying, people are less likely to respond to that argument with favor. And so Aristotle said that part of making a, an important 
um, pitch, part of making a convincing argument is to be someone and to have it presented by someone who is trustworthy and their reputation is well known. And in other readings, back to Paul now, um, Paul will make a scriptural argument for the uh, the rational argument for Jesus's Messiahship, right? He'll go through and he'll find uh, Old Testament readings and say this is how it applies and clearly Jesus is, is Lord. And in other readings, Paul will share how he wept with tears and groans inwardly and outwardly and how he metaphorically bangs his head against the wall in frustration. Um, and Paul writes like this because he's making an emotional appeal for the church to turn around. But in our reading today, Paul is using the, the, the third option. He's forsaking the logical and the emotional argument and going straight for the ethos, the ethic of the speaker, saying, here is my life experience that led to this moment, so you know I'm all in, right? I'm not just a leader for this cause. I'm also someone who believes it wholeheartedly and has experienced it myself. To quote Cy Sperling, I'm not just the president. I'm not just an apostle. I'm also a client. And we've been talking about mission and evangelism in the church for some time now. And the American church has always placed a premium on people sharing their testimonies. Maybe to a fault, right? Because we hear so many stories of God's faithfulness in our life and we just gravitate toward the dramatic ones, don't we, right? I was a homeless alcoholic and then I met Jesus. I was unfaithful to, uh, to my wife and destroyed my marriage and then I met Jesus. I had a significant eating disorder and then I met Jesus. Um, I was in a terrible corporate job and then I met Jesus and I quit it all and now I work for pennies at a nonprofit to help um, uh, people recover from drug addiction. And the reality is that many of us don't have that kind of dramatic, life-changing story. Uh, not all of us were opposed to Christianity, murdering and arresting its followers, only to be knocked blind off our high horses by a personal visit from Jesus. That's Paul's story. It may not be ours. And yet that doesn't mean your testimonies aren't good and true and necessary. Maybe you just have something like this. I follow Jesus and I realized I had a judgmental attitude. And after a while, I'm still judgmental. I'm just not as judgmental as I used to be. Or maybe it's anger, right? I'm just, I follow Jesus and I'm not as angry as I used to be. Or I'm not as scared or fearful or anxious or depressed as I used to be. Maybe you sound something like this. I grew up in a Christian home and my parents took me to church. So I avoided all the pitfalls of the teens and 20 years that have um, kicked so many other people off of, of life's easy road. And the reality is, is I have a calm and blessed life. Not because I was good, but because I was the gracious recipient of heaven's providence and a good family upbringing. Right? And that may be your story as well. But when we tell our testimony, right, not just people outside our fellowship, but people inside our fellowship too, what that does is it helps us all see God at work, active in our everyday lives. Paul is not saying in our reading today that I had one sort of chance encounter with God and then, um, you know, I sort of, it was a blip on my radar and I moved on, right? What he's saying is, no, God is active in, in my everyday life, and you guys need to understand that he's active in this world, and he could be active in your life too. And so when we pray, share when our prayer requests are answered, um, we share that the providence of God has blessed us in an unexpected way, and we share our need when times are tough, and we celebrate when God pulls us through those tough times. 
I mean, you may know this, but the Old Testament Israelites in Exodus and Genesis and, and, and elsewhere, the Old Testament Israelites, whenever God did something incredible in their midst, what they would do is they would they would build a rock altar at the site of that great miracle uh, as a memorial. And these were big rock altars and formations. They would stack these big giant rock formations together, meant to serve the test of time. And each one had a name and a purpose. And, and in one famous example, the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament has led an army uh, of Israel against the Philistines and they win. And part of the reason they win is because the army of Israel undergoes a profound religious revival. They get rid of all their pagan idols, they reject the other gods, and return to the God of Israel. And once this battle is over, um, the text says this, that Samuel the prophet sets up a rock altar to God, and he names this rock altar the Stone of Help, because God helped them win that day. And again, you may know this, but the word for stone in Hebrew is Eben. And the word for help is Edzer. And so in English, the name for this rock formation, we call it Ebenezer, Ebenezer, a rock that serves as a testimony to the gracious work of God, who forgave the sins of Israel and gave them victory in battle. And so if you've ever wondered why Charles Dickens chose to name his lead character Ebenezer Scrooge, it's because the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is a testimony of the help of God to save a lost and wayward soul. And that's the story of, of the Christmas Carol, right? Uh, that's why he's named Ebenezer Scrooge, because God makes him into a walking, living testimony about um, the goodness of God. And this is why in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which we sing fairly often in church, we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Because it's setting up in our hearts and minds a spiritual, mental uh, rock that reminds us constantly how God has and will to continue to prov provide for his people. And so, again, this question of testimony, right? Sometimes we share it out loud. Sometimes we build rock formations. But it begs the question, right? What has God done for you? What has God done for you? Um, and I'll tell you something of a quick story about something God did for me, and uh, then we'll conclude this morning. I'll tell you a story about when I was a teenager. Um, there were fewer things I wanted to do with my life than attend um, the Maggie L. Walker Governor's School for Government and International Studies. And the Governor's School is what it's called in Richmond, and it's this regional high school for the best and the brightest students in Central Virginia. And I did everything I could. I really wanted to go there. It was sort of a validation thing. I needed to feel like a smarty pants. I needed to do everything I could to set myself up for success to get uh, into this high school, this magnet style high school. So I got the best teacher recommendations. I didn't just fill out the application, I typed it. I worked extra hard to make sure my grades were the top of the line. And the last part of the application process to get into Maggie Walker was a special entrance exam. And the idea was, if I did well on this exam, I would likely be uh, in at Maggie Walker for my high school years. And so the night before the exam, I got down on my knees next to my bed and I prayed. And my prayer was something to this effect. Lord, I've never wanted anything so much in my life, so I will make you a deal. Again, this is eighth grade me bargaining with the God of the universe. If you get me into Maggie Walker, I'll promise you that I'll get baptized and start going to church again. 
I mean, so superstitious, right? As if I, as an eighth grader, could bargain with God about my future. As if I, a 14-year-old kid without a driver's license, had any agency to follow through on my bargain with God. Well, I took the test, and I bombed the writing portion, and I got my letter of rejection a few weeks later. And that was what it was. Um, I didn't blame God or anything at the time. I thought it was a little hoity-toity to to blame God for my failures. But I had resigned myself to go to another high school, which was fine, and I was happy to do it. But I didn't get into Maggie Walker. Uh, Three months later, in the month of August, my mother gets a phone call. The governor's school was calling because they had gone through the entire waiting list. They had gone through every single spot on the waiting list. And they still had some open spots in the fall. And now they were inviting some rejects into the class uh, that year. Would I like to go to Maggie Walker? And of course, I was elated, right? In my eighth grade mind, this was a miracle. This was a gift from God. And and here's the thing, right? Um, I started in school that fall. But here's also what happened. My freshman year of high school, my family started going back to, to church after some time of absence. And about six months later in my freshman year, we walked the aisle at the big Baptist church, Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. And one of their pastoral staff asked me, they said, Brian, are you baptized? Do you want to be baptized? And I thought to myself and said, oh yeah, I remember the bargain I made with God. Yes. And that's the story of how I got to uh, go to church during high school and surprise, now I'm a pastor, right? But the reality is, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really belong at Maggie Walker. I was one of the dumbest kids there. My classmates got like Ivy League college admissions and scored perfect on the SATs. I was terrible at math, I was terrible at science, and I did so poorly in those courses, I had to retake them again uh, the next year. But God had other plans for me. I thought I was going to Maggie Walker to get smart and make a career for myself, but instead I learned how unsmart I was and how I couldn't rely on my sort of smarts to get me through life and how I needed Jesus instead. Uh, So to paraphrase Cy Sperling, friends, I tell you this today, I'm not a preacher, I'm also a client. But whenever I think back to my high school years and the whole experience was great, I had a great time in high school, but my whole experience is tinted with a tangible experience of God answering prayer. And he answered not just his side, my side of the bargain, but his side too, right? Um, that he not only got me into the school, but he got me plugged into a church and baptized. It's an Ebenezer moment for me. It's a testimony to the goodness of God when I was completely unable to uphold my end of the bargain. It's a moment when God knocked me off of my high horse and helped me understand his truth on a deeper and soul-satisfying sort of way. And it's stories like this, friends, that alongside the testimony of the scriptures and the community of the church, that these are the things that keep us connected with ultimate reality. Answered prayers, the active work of God here and now in our lives. And so if the mobs ever do come for us, and I don't expect them to, but in those moments when our faith is tested, we can stand like Paul does in our reading today, confident that come heck or high water, God actually loves us in the here and now. It is true, every word of it. Jesus' death and resurrection is true. And we are in relationship with a God who is invested with us in the here and now. He's not hitting the cosmic snooze button for five more minutes when we pray, but he is actively and fully invested in our day-to-day life. And that's the God, friends, who is coming to forgive sins and judge the living and the dead. 
And so friends, I tell you today that the good news of the Christian gospel is here for you. Rejoice today that God is good. Share your own Ebenezer stories with each other and wait with hope unwavering for Christ to fix and return and return and fix the world. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief, open the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ lay death in his grave. Pennsylvania.